to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be discussing how uh, voter suppression is impacting the runoff election happening inside Georgia. Also going to be uh, talking about the academic worker strike happening inside California and going to be touching on the issue of FTX and the fate of cryptocurrency. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie Tell them what's on your mind. Well, last night I was seriously wondering if we were going to be at World War III by this time today as news broke earlier that a missile that killed two in Poland was thought to have come from Russia. And it felt like the Polish president, Andrzej Zuda, was very cautious in saying anything, not saying anything at all, while NATO leaders waited for his word on bated breath. I think those NATO leaders were waiting specifically because if it was determined that Russia had fired a missile that landed in Poland and killed two people, even if the missile landing in Poland was a mistake, that could be considered by them as an attack on Poland, which is a member of NATO. And the other member countries in NATO would pretty much be required to respond in defense of one of its member countries. I kind of had the feeling that those NATO commanders were sitting on the edge of their seats, waiting to spring into action, calling up their troops and deploying them to attack Russia. I mean, these people were carrying out nuclear war exercises every year before the conflict in Ukraine escalated and continued the exercises even as the war deepened. Operation Steadfast Noon consisted of 14 of the 30 NATO nations all surrounding Russia that ran exercises with military jets that carried dummy loads that represented nuclear-tipped missiles for 14 days. Dozens of fighter aircraft from various member states, those under NATO's direct command, and long-range U.S. strategic bombers from the U.S. as well. Ground exercises included simulating movements and maintenance of weapons, drills to safeguard them from both conventional military and so-called terrorist attacks. Well, they were also carried out in these exercises all in the countries bordering Russia. All of this was done, according to NATO and the U.S., to show Putin that NATO would respond to nuclear threats from Russia that Putin never actually made. But really, it was all a part of the ongoing U.S.-NATO provocation of Russia. And that missile landing in Poland was just the thing these bloodthirsty NATO commanders needed to put their doomsday exercises to good use. Except... Polish President Duda may have literally saved us all from World War III with his announcement yesterday. He said, quote, there's no indication that this was an intentional attack on Poland. Most likely, it was a Russian-made S-300 rocket and that there was a high chance it was an air defense missile from the Ukrainian side and likely had fallen on Polish territory in an accident while intercepting incoming Russian missiles. Man, that is some wordsmithing right there. 
While we reasonable human beings are breathing a sigh of relief that NATO hasn't activated Article 5 of their charter today, I get the feeling that those NATO commanders are very disappointed that they have no cause to mobilize their troops to attack Russia in defense of Poland. And among them are the war hawks in the U.S., which includes President Biden, who has said he won't send U.S. troops to Ukraine unless Article 5 of the NATO charter is invoked. So instead of sending troops, Biden is happy to continue sending weapons and money to Ukraine for the time being, asking Congress for $9.25 billion to fight COVID-19 and an additional, get this, $37.7 billion to support Ukraine in its war with Russia as part of a supplemental funding request, not the Ukrainian war with Russia. We all know this is a U.S.-NATO proxy war that they are fighting using Ukraine to fight Russia. But the priorities of this administration are certainly reflected in where it spends our money. And it's clear that supporting the people of Ukraine fight the U.S.-NATO war to weaken Russia at $38 billion is far more important than supporting the people of the U.S. to defeat COVID-19 or anything else. And all of its possible mutations and subsequent diseases with just a paltry $9 billion. The Biden administration says that the $9 billion will go to prepare for a possible winter surge in COVID-19 cases to smooth the path to commercialization for vaccines and therapeutics. I don't even know what that means to speed up research and treatment for long COVID and to develop new vaccines and treatments. But we the people don't even get all of that because of the nine point two five billion dollars, one billion dollars would go toward helping fight the virus worldwide. And that's not even close to enough for all of this. But Ukraine gets all their needs met, though, with plenty of money for defense equipment, humanitarian assistance and something called nuclear security support. There's that nuclear thing again. While we may not be at World War Three today, thanks to Poland's president, We are certainly at war with our own government over the proxy war in Ukraine. They are funding with our money. And in case you missed it, Donald J. Trump did announce his intention to run for president in 2024 last night. And you might have missed it because it was an oddly low key kind of thing. Or should I say low energy as his speech was widely derided? Jeb Bush Jr. turned Trump's famous insult at his dad from 2016 back on Trump by tweeting, what a low energy speech by the Donald. Hashtag Sleepy Donnie. ABC's Jonathan Carl called the speech incredibly low energy and said he saw people leaving in the middle of it or trying to leave until they were blocked from leaving by security. Olivia Rubin of the same network filmed people at the doors waiting to leave as Trump continued his boring hour long speech, but they were unable to leave as security kept the doors closed. What might even be worse than the public mocking of what appears to be the unpopularity of Trump's new campaign announcement? Well, that's the public mocking of his new campaign slogan, which is, get this, y'all, make America great and glorious again. Magaga. And it's already being derided as sounding like baby babble, triggering people's gag reflex and 
being mistaken for what you'd call Lady Gaga's mom. Get it? Lady Gaga, Ma Gaga. Yeah, okay. I'll take the laughs for now, because who doesn't want to laugh at Donald Trump? But I wouldn't dismiss this clown and his supporters just yet. If anyone is capable of pulling off a last laugh to the detriment of everyone and everything around him, it's Donald Trump. And this isn't a compliment of the man. That's a recognition of how serious the threat is behind the sentiment that propelled him to the White House the first time around and how serious that threat still is. Follow Luke My Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke My Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Greg Pallast, investigative reporter and author of several New York Times bestsellers, including The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. His new film, Vigilante, Georgia's Vote Suppression Hitman, produced by Martin Sheen, is streaming for free for a limited time. Go to gregpallast.com for info. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, glad to be with you again, Sean. Hey, Jackie. Absolutely. And uh, Greg, uh, Senator Raphael Warnock has joined a a, a lawsuit with the Georgia Democrats uh, that was filed basically to allow for Saturday voting in Georgia's Senate runoff election, which, of course, he'll be running against uh, football player Herschel Walker. Now, uh, Georgia Secretary of State uh, Brad Raffensperger uh, has uh, initially suggested um, that counties would, in fact, be able to hold early voting for the runoff uh, the Saturday after Thanksgiving. Uh, His office later walked that back, stating that uh, Georgia uh, voting laws uh, sort of blocked the state from having an election two days after a holiday. And so Warnock, along with the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee and the Georgia Democratic uh, Party, are uh, arguing in their lawsuit that basically uh, this provision does not apply to runoffs. And uh, Warnock's campaign manager, Quentin Folks, said, in a statement, quote, illegal attempts to block Saturday voting are another desperate attempt by career politicians to squeeze the people out of their own democracy and to silence the voices of Georgians. We're aggressively fighting to protect Georgia voters ability to vote on Saturday. And this feels like just sort of one more episode in a long saga of, you know, uh, a vote suppression in Georgia, or as I know you call it, uh, 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 Greg, a uh, vote theft, because in, in substance, that's that's what it is. And so it seems that when it comes to these elections, we always end up talking quite a bit about Georgia. And so I'm not only curious your thoughts about this uh, lawsuit, Greg, but how you sort of see uh, the issue of voting in Georgia continuing to play out as uh, uh, we make our way, as Georgia makes its way to its uh, uh, runoff here. Well, that's why I made a film about it. (laughs) I live comfortably in Hollywood, uh, so why do I? For nine years, I've been going back to Georgia. Why? Because it's the test kitchen of vote suppression—a a very polite term, you know. Like, I, you know, if someone's, thats why I use the term "steal." You got to be very careful about that. They pull you off YouTube, but it's—you um, know—if someone takes your steals your car, you don't say, "My car has been suppressed." You say, 
you say, my car's been jacked, right? And that's what they do to your vote. But it's not everyone's vote. We, talk, we, we say vote suppression. Come on, let's get down to it. Uh, as I recently said at a Harvard lecture with Latasha Brown, who's the founder of Black Voters Matter, suppression is the polite term for shafting black people out of their vote. Okay, it's not everyone who gets suppressed. Let's make this clear. All right, let's be very, very clear. I mean, the Democrats say it's Democrats, but that's because most African Americans are Democrats. But it's a racial issue, and they're going after uh, black people. Uh, Asian Americans are a real target in Georgia, Hispanics, and um, young people. It's quite a crew. That's most of the voters, actually. That's the majority. If you put that, that group together, that's the majority. And if they let the majority actually vote, guys like Brian Kemp and Herschel Walker, Donald Trump, don't stand a chance. Okay, so, but it's, I'm not being partisan, I'm being factual. Okay, so in this case, last year, after the Democrats, remember, shocked the, the heck out of not only the Republicans, they shocked the heck out of the Democratic Party by sweeping Georgia. Biden won the state officially by just 11,000 votes. But so did uh, R- Raphael Warnock, uh, who is, by the way, the, the reverend who took Martin Luther King's place at the Ebenezer Baptist Church, and uh, John Ossoff, who's Jewish. And so you have Georgia picking a black man and a Jewish man as their senators, Joe Biden, for president, and the power establishment in Georgia just went nuts. And remember, this – look uh, – uh, vote suppression is class war by other means. The ruling class of Georgia is scared to death of people who take away their privileges, might actually tax them to support the schools and, and the hospitals. Remember, uh, Georgia is a state that didn't even accept the free money from from uh, the federal government for health insurance. That's one of the reasons that made Stacey Abrams come so close to winning the governorship this time and actually really won last time, but they took it away from her through these Jim Crow tactics. But this last year, um, Governor Brian Kemp, after that Democratic sweep with the Georgia legislature, solved the gerrymandered Republican, passed a law, SB 202, 98 pages long, which uh, the lawyer in the case you're talking about, Gerald Griggs, who's head of the NAACP, is also my lawyer. He calls it Jim Crow 2.0. Because it's filled with all this stuff. When we had the runoff last year in 2021, uh, it was um, in 2021. Uh, we had uh, uh, right after that they had they had a, a 60 day runoff period. In the new law, they crushed it to 30 days. Well, it's brilliant because they knew that first of all, it was or 29 28 days. Excuse me. Why 28 days? Because you can't. Re- you need 30 days to register to vote in Georgia, 30 days before election. So when they have the runoff, uh, groups like Black Lives, Black Voters Matter can't register new voters. They just miss by a day, like that. In addition, they knew it was going through Thanksgiving by cutting it to 30 days. Thanksgiving's in the middle. Well, they stuck into this Georgia law that you can't have voting on Saturday if there's a federal holiday during the week. And the Democrats didn't catch that. No one caught that. They knew what they were doing, which is that if there's a runoff, we're going to eliminate souls to the polls weekends. Think about it. They don't have enough time to do early voting this weekend because you have to print the ballots, hire all these people, and set up a voting system. 
That goes into the following week. Ah, it's after Thanksgiving. The law says you can't have early voting. You can't have early voting the next week because the week before the election and under Georgia law, unlike most other states in America, you can't have weekend early voting uh, that Saturday and Sunday. That's souls to the polls day. That's black voting day. The majority of African-Americans in the United States vote early, usually souls to the polls weekends. And so they knew exactly what they were doing, exactly. And they put in these little minefields in this Jim Crow law, Jim Crow 2.0 or SB 202, as, as Brian Kemp calls it. That's what's going on here. This is part of a general full-scale attack on voting rights in Georgia, which is the only reason Warnock's even in a runoff. Otherwise, he would have, if it weren't for SB 202, Warnock would have danced away with it. And so would, I think, you know, possibly even Stacey Abrams. But you know what, Greg, what you just said about the the fact that the Democrats missed these little poison pills in this bill that's already a big poison, a big pot of poison for black voters. This is my issue, I think, with the Democrats. While I understand that the Republicans, this is all a part of uh, a very massive Republican campaign, an ongoing campaign, a decades long campaign by the Republicans to take away the right for black people in particular to vote. I don't understand that since we know this is going on, how do the Democrats in the Georgia legislature, quote unquote, miss this kind of stuff in an obvious response by the Republican Party to nullify any gains that the Democrats made in the last election? How in the world do they miss this? Well, here's the problem. The, the bill is was 98 pages long. I'm telling you, I found landmines all over. I, and I work with the voting rights group, but I don't work with the Democratic Party. Uh, it's Greg Pallast. I'm a journalist. I'm definitely – and I have a foundation. I'm completely nonpartisan on this. The Democrats are schizophrenic. I mean, obviously, Stacey Abrams, who is a Yale Law graduate, doesn't miss very much. Uh, Raphael Warnock is is one of the sharpest people I've ever met. This is not an endorsement. I'm just telling you how it is. I mean, uh, Herschel Walker, no one would ever confuse with a Rhodes Scholar. Um, Raphael Warnock uh, does. You would. I don't know if he's a Rhodes Scholar, but you know that's where he is. But. There's all these landmines in there, but the Democratic Party is split, national and local. Local party is very active. It's interesting. Georgia has produced the, the, our two most progressive senators. Uh, you know, they're, they're uh, on a political spectrum with Bernie Sanders out of Georgia. But the national party is out of step with Georgia, in fact, is hostile, very hostile to Georgia and Stacey Abrams and Reverend Warnock in, in the sense of, one, they're progressives. The other is that the... You had Joe Biden say just before this, the general election last Tuesday, you had Joe Biden say, don't vote for anyone who doesn't promise to accept the results of the election. Well, that's pretty much a direct slap in the face of Stacey Abrams, who famously and courageously said, I don't accept the results of this election when she supposedly lost to Brian Kemp in 2018. Now, you could, maybe it's my fault because she cited my evidence that there were three. Are you ready? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Brian Kemp, who was the secretary of state, that is, he's the man in charge of voting. He removed half a million voters from the voter rolls. No one's ever seen anything like it. He said they didn't live in Georgia. They weren't legal voters. Well, I hired 
uh, the Palace Investigative Fund uh, hired and got volunteers from the experts at Amazon and Google, who obviously Google Map. They know exactly where you live. Believe me. Try not to pay your bill to American Express. They'll find you. They know where people live. And so I asked those experts, where do these, did these people really leave Georgia? They said, no, 340,144 to be exact. They gave us the list of names, our legal voters. They were also voting while black, which in Georgia is nearly a crime. So he removed a third of a million legal voters, including, by the way, Martin Luther King's 92-year-old cousin. I know that because I was at the voting station in Atlanta when King's cousin in a walker, 92 years old, shows up and they said, Scram, get out of here, old lady. You're not on our voter rolls anymore. Get lost. You don't live in Atlanta. Then I went to her house down the street in Atlanta, and there was a picture of her with Martin Luther King having dinner at her house He because he went there after church every Sunday. This is the voter that they removed and a third of a million others. That's how Brian Kemp became governor. And then, and that's before SB 202, but Stacey Abrams didn't accept that result. She said, look, he's governor because he set the rules. He's secretary of state. He came up with these crazy, uh, basically racist rules, which blocked legitimate voters. And that's why he's governor. And then Biden says, don't vote for anyone who says that. Just before the election. So the Democratic National Party is is completely opposed to the positions of those people on the ground fighting vote suppression. It's true, Biden said, he did identify the Georgia law SB202 by Brian Kemp as a, he said, oh, it's a racist law, it's Jim Crow, but it hasn't affected any elections. All our elections are perfect. So how, let me ask you a question, Sean and Jackie. How is it that you can say that there's vote suppression in the United States that you need to protect voters of color with new laws at the national level, but then at the same time say, well, this vote suppression has never changed an election. All our elections are perfect. (laughs) It's got to be one or the other. That's why I made a movie about it. So anyway, by the way, I want to remind people, you can see the film for free. Just go to gregpalace.com, click through, uh, or uh, gregpalace.com, or vigilantemovie.com will take you right there. Vigilante movie for vigilante Georgia's vote suppression hitman. And even you don't have to live in Georgia to think this is important because I don't live in Georgia. This is a national issue. Yeah, without question. And, and I mean, to, to, to answer your question, I think that uh, Biden and, and the Democratic leadership do that basically to uh, uh, give the impression that like, hey, we're very aware of this uh, uh, issue. And the fact of talking about it implies that they're going to do something about it. But we see they actually don't. They not only don't fight for it, but as you say, they um, actively sort of uh, uh, undermine people who are pointing that out. And uh, I also wanted to raise, Greg, how this this uh, SB202, how this factors into the runoff itself. And you published a piece about this on your website, gregpalace.com, entitled, uh, Why Did Mail-In Ballots in Georgia Plunge by One Million? State's New Law uh, Forced Runoff in Senate Race. So how did uh, this Jim Crow law play into uh, the fact that we're even having a runoff in Georgia right now? Yes, well, uh, that was published this morning in Black Gwinnett Weekly, but you can see it at gregpalace.com when you get your free uh, excuse me, Black Gwinnett Magazine, which is Gwinnett is a county of, um, which is a suburban county of, of Atlanta. Okay, we had, are you ready for this number? In 2020, 1.28 million 
ballots were cast by mail, a million and a quarter ballots. This election, it was 200,000 ballots were cast by mail. You had an 81% drop in mail-in balloting, 81%. One million ballots went poof. Now, whose ballots are they? Well, Reverend Warnock, when he ran last year, remember, he's on a short term. He's just filling out another senator's term. Um, Senator Warnock won those mail-in ballots more than two to one, and in Fulton County, four to one in mail-in ballots. So those are hundreds of thousands of votes that Warnock would have had over Herschel Walker. He would have walked away with the election. There would be no runoff, except that they virtually banned mail-in ballots, which are the the preference of Democrats in Georgia, overwhelmingly. They lost one million. That hasn't been reported anywhere in U.S. papers. Instead, they bought the BS that there was a record early vote turnout. Early vote always includes mail-in voting. There wasn't a record turnout. There was a loss of a million votes because they required they they made it virtually impossible to get mail-in ballots. And now it'll be even worse in the runoff. In the runoff because they have no time to print the ballots. Get them to you. You have to request them now in Georgia. You used to be able to mail them out automatically. You have to request them in Georgia. You have to. Uh, it's one of the only states that requires you to include ID when you put in a mail-in ballot. Another step, but it also creates confusion, disqualifications. And they locked away the drop boxes where people put the mail-in ballots. Imagine if the post office said, and what they said is that you have to only, you can only use a drop box during early voting hours with the drop boxes inside buildings. Well, and that's like a post office saying, we're removing all the mailboxes in America, and you can only um, put in a letter during business hours inside a building, inside a post office. Well, we'd say, well, that's ridiculous. Same with mail-in balloting. Why is mail-in balloting different? The answer is because Donald Trump and his and his gang have said, oh, they steal votes through mail-in balloting and drop boxes. They don't. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation, based on these cockamamie accusations, actually did an audit of every single drop box ballot in Atlanta. I kid you not. They went through every tens of thousands of ballots. They went through all of them, did not find a single fraudulent one. And yet they use this excuse, the state of Georgia, to lock away the drop boxes and eliminate a giant hunk of minority voting. And and student voting is almost eliminated. Who votes for students? They don't vote Republican. Totally. Well, we thank you so much, Greg, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
And today we're talking about the labor struggle happening amongst California academic workers. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Todd Emenegger, Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences and teaching assistant at UCLA. Todd, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, awesome to join. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And Todd, uh, some 48,000 researchers, graders, uh, postdoctoral folks uh, and teaching assistants um, have been on uh, uh, the front lines of uh, walking off the job and demanding higher wages throughout the University of California system. And and I was hoping you could uh, break down sort of uh, what all uh, is happening and what's motivating uh, with this uh, uh, strategy that we see happening here and uh, how you've seen it uh, uh, playing out so far. Yeah, so I would, I mean, it's been really inspiring to just see a bunch of academic students, you know, employees and workers kind of walk on the job because, I mean, our relationship is different with our employer. Um, we're students, right? We're students and we also produce value for the university work for them. Um, so our relationship to our bosses are oftentimes different, like kind of like a mentor-mentee relationship. So, um but the thing is that your, our professors and our advisors aren't the ones that decide really what our wages are. It's like the university, it's the California Board of Regents and, or the UC Board of Regents and the office of the president. And, I mean, they set it really low. So they classify us as students and um, they kind of like misclassify our wages as student support. So, they say, so just to give you an idea... Across all 10 UC campuses, 92% of us are rent burdened. Uh, we make about $24,000 a year on average. And, I mean, really the big issue is the housing crisis. That's how, how all this really came about, is we can't afford to live where we work. Some of us live in university housing, and the rent will be, like, for example, okay, I was paying, like, I was getting paid $1,800 a month when I first started here at UCLA. And uh, the university housing that's close to campus for graduate students is like 1400 to $1,600. Um, on top of that, you know, a lot of us come in with student debt. Um, I didn't have any, I, my credit card was maxed out. I was sleeping on the floor eating potatoes <laughs> for a while. Um, so yeah, this is all, I mean, this is all just in conjunction with the housing crisis going on in California and just the cost of living. And it's inspiring just to see students rise up and say, you know, this is enough. Um, we deserve better. We deserve more. We were the ones that make this university function and run, um, which is the flagship university system of the fourth largest economy in the world. So we all know it's there. We all know we can win it. We just have to fight for it. Yeah. And you said that it's inspiring to see, you know, the student uh, academics raise up, uh, rise up and come together like this. What's also been ex- inspiring has been the uh, expressions of solidarity that have come from uh, other sections of American labor, like the United Auto Workers and the Teamsters. What have they uh, said and what have they done in solidarity with this uh, strike action on the UC campus? Yeah, so you, I mean, just, I guess I should mention this. So all, all their units in the UC system, the um, union for teaching assistants, UAW 2865, for postdoctoral scholars and academic researchers at UAW 5810. We have a newly formed unit called Student Researchers United, which is also under UAW. So UAW has been absolutely instrumental in helping this whole thing kind of you know, come about. And I'm, I'm sure they're going to be looking forward to uh, more struggles in higher education, too. 
But um, on top of just that support they give us, you know, with, with um, I mean, all the support you can possibly have from like a larger um, kind of like union organization and the international. Um, we also have like the California Federation of Labor. They've reached out to the Teamsters, for example, as you mentioned, have uh, stopped doing all shipments to all the UCs. Um, so that's going to really, you know, shut down a lot of the university's operations. So um, we also have bus drivers here at UCLA that I've been talking to. They're part of another union, um, SMART, and they're going to stop driving the buses onto campus. So it's it's amazing to see everyone just kind of come together. And I think my first day of really feeling that solidarity was on the first day of the strike, talking to bus drivers, and they're like, no, we don't cross picket lines. And it was, yeah, it's, it's the first time I've ever felt like something like that because I've just been an academic student employee and, um, yeah, I've never worked a union job before. Yeah, and, you know, um, a moment ago, uh, Todd, you were talking about how um, for academic workers, your relationship to your employer is, is fundamentally different than perhaps what uh, we may traditionally think of as an employee-employer relationship. I was hoping you could sort of expound on why that is and how um, the character of this kind of work can lend itself uh, to worker exploitation. Yeah, so... Um, this is a great question. So for example, in the physical sciences, um, it's been really hard having these organizing conversations because people like their advisors. They like their, uh, who are their bosses or like principal investigators. Um, they like them. They like they're you know, they have like a different kind of relationship, a mentor mentee. And a lot of times it's funny that I, I love my advisor. He's a great person and a, and a, and a great mentor, but they don't, they don't set our wages and, um, like if we're working as a researcher, we get paid through grant money that our, uh, PIs or principal investigators bring in the university is the one that decides how much of the grant money is used for our wages. And they agree that it should be higher. And oftentimes the university takes off a giant chunk of that grant to kind of put towards their, it's like an overhead cost to put towards their administrative, um, I guess budgets. Cause they can't, they can't really balance balance the budget here because state funding has been absolutely gutted from the University of California system. I think if you just, if you adjust for inflation, it's gone down $6 billion in the past 10 years. Um, and that what they've done is they've just taken out of our grants and they've just found other ways to raise those funds. Um, so the organizing conversations have been hard, but ultimately all the faculty and staff support us for the most part. Um, we have professors in my department that say at first, you know, they're kind of, um, maybe on the fence about it, you know, us kind of ceasing work and stopping teaching. But after we talk to them, they're like, you know what? Yeah, you're right. It's so hard to live even on a professor's salary on a UC campus. Um, I can't imagine what it's like living on like a fifth of that, which is what we're doing. Right. Um, and I think in terms of, so the, the exploitation is a little, it's a little different because it's not necessarily your, your mentor because they're not the ones deciding your wages. You're producing the wealth for the university system. Um, and the university systems once it rakes in all that money. So it, it's a little disconnected. And um, in a way that we've explained really well to all the academic student employees we have across the university system, because everyone understands that this isn't against our advisors, this is against the UC Board of Regents, the UC Office of the President. They're the ones that decide our wages. The professors are all on board, so for the most part. 
Yeah, and um, I'm also curious because you talked about how, you know, the cost of living in, in California is going up, and that's a fact. I mean, I know in cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco, you'll see some of the highest rents um, in the country. And so I'm just wondering, you know, what else are the academic workers uh, demanding uh, besides uh, higher wages? Yeah, so, I mean, we've won some anti-bullying protections because not always, people don't always love their advisors. I mean, <laughs> So academia, I've heard this, is actually second only to the military in terms of sexual harassment um, claims. So um, there's a lot of worker protections that we fought for. We've won them. We won them with this contract. It's the economic package that's kind of lagging. I mean, that's where this, where this, um, where the strike, you know, really, really came to be because the university has been dragging their feet at the bargaining table. They're not really meeting us at the bargaining table. They're not negotiating with us fairly. They've proposing 7% increase for the first year, which doesn't even keep up with the cost of inflation right now. Um, So yeah, we're bargaining for, so as I said earlier, $24,000 is the average UC academic student employee salary. We're asking for $54,000. And that's just based on the rent, like the minimum amount it would take to unrent burden the average UC worker. Um, So really most of it is, is this, is the wages just to deal with the rent. We also want university housing rent to be capped because there's no reason it should be based on speculation. And um, it should be, you know, for the students, not, not, you see their landlord essentially. So we're also fighting kind of like a tenant struggle there. Um, but some other things we've won is just job security. Um, sometimes students, um, if you lose funding, like they lose the grant money, then the, they'll just have to like drop out of school or start, paying through it on their own because there's no funding there. So we're winning like guaranteed appointments. Um, we're also fighting for transit benefits. Um, I mean, U- university of California says they, you know, uh, are devoted to fighting climate change, but I mean, they recently just pulled out their investment in fossil fuel industry. I think like last summer or something, but, um, yeah, this is kind of funny. Actually, we are bargaining, we're bargaining for like a, a prepaid transit card for all the workers to get to campus. And they gave like two of the units like twenty dollars a month, and they gave they gave postdocs a card with zero dollars. So they're just gonna give us a card <laughs> that had no money on it, which is like, oh god, absolutely absurd. But um, we're also another thing we're fighting for is, so in university, like international students, for example, have to pay these giant taxes called the non-residential supplemental tuition, along with visa fees. And it's in everyone's eyes here. It's a discriminatory tax on puts on international students that really just upholds the xenophobia that we see here in, in academia. Um, I want to tell this, this amazing kind of inspiring story that happened recently at UC San Diego, where a, a Chinese postdoc who was six months pregnant refused to fabricate data for her PI. And she was fired by her PI. So a bunch of our union workers went and surrounded the dean of physical sciences, I believe it was office. And he ended up calling the police saying that he was kidnapped. But ultimately what happened is we got her and she was going to lose her visa since she lost her, her position. We got her reinstated for six more months so she could have her kid. And she doesn't fly on a plane when she's six months pregnant. So that was something really powerful we saw. And I think it's like, you know, uh, something we're fighting for here. We're fighting against xenophobia and academia. There's, there's a lot of things on the table. Um, we're also fighting for childcare uh, longer parental leaves. Cause a lot of these students also, you know, want to start families. Some of us are, you know, between the ages 25 to, you know, 40. 
and time to start a family, but you can't do that if you're making 24K a year. So, yeah, we want things like childcare reimbursements and things like that as well. Yeah, and in the last couple of minutes, uh, Todd, if people want to follow uh, the California academic worker strike and everything that's uh, happening there, I mean, uh, where should they be looking if they want to find out more? Yeah, so I'd recommend going to fairucnow.org. We have all of our information there, inspiring stories from students um, about why they're in our union, why they're fighting this fight. Uh, we also have links to the hardship fund because uh, we're right now we're all just going off strike pay with just hundred dollars um, a week. So, you know, it's tough to make rent with that. Um, but I would go there. We have all the issues there. We also have all our uh, unfair labor practice charges that we've brought against the university in the course of bargaining with them. Um, so I would just, I would recommend just starting off on our site, fairucnow.org. Absolutely. And I think it's important that uh, people follow this issue, just like we follow the other labor struggles happening inside the United States right now, whether it's uh, uh, Starbucks or other sectors of the working force. And I think the fact that we continue to see uh, so many uh, uh, labor struggles like we're seeing in California is an indication about, uh, I think, uh, deepening working class consciousness in the U.S. that will be important, particularly uh, as we move towards the future. But we thank you so much, Todd, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the fate of cryptocurrency. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dr. Robert Hockett, Edward Cornell Professor of Law at Cornell University and Senior Counsel for Westwood Capital. Dr. Hockett, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean. Hey, Jackie. Great to be with you guys again. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And thanks for joining us today, doctor. And, you know, a, a, a lot of attention and headlines are being focused right now around a cryptocurrency exchange group FTX filing for a bankruptcy, filing for Chapter 11 protections. And uh, this is a company based in the Bahamas with a CNN, excuse me, CNBC and Reuters, uh, citing two unnamed sources, saying that a billion dollars in customer assets may be missing. And I think uh, uh, this is raising a lot of questions that tend to come up a lot when talking about cryptocurrency in terms of regulation and oversight and things like that. And so to begin, Dr. Hockett, if you could explain just what FTX is and what them filing for bankruptcy says uh, about the state of cryptocurrency right now. Yeah, so I think there are a couple things that are worth sort of emphasizing here. Uh, the first is that crypto is simply the latest in a long history of sort of bad investments that go bad before the regulatory umbrella comes to sort of cover them. And usually there's a hint that it's a bad investment in the very name, right? So you guys might remember that about 10, 12, 
14 years ago, um, the big bad asset was the so-called um, subprime mortgage loan, mm, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then about 10, 20 years before that, the great big bad investment class was the so-called junk bond. Um, there's usually a hint in the name that you would think would sort of warn people uh, maybe to kind of steer clear of these, of these junk investments, right? Junk bonds were indeed junk, and subprime mortgages were indeed subprime. And cryptocurrency is indeed crypto, which is, in other words, kind of like a crypt, which suggests suggests debt, uh, and kind of cryptic, which suggests non-transparency, right? Um, and yet, notwithstanding the fact that you get these kind of warning signs in the very labels, it never seems to fail to happen that large numbers of people who are eager to get, kind of get something for nothing will invest in those crazy assets, and then a lot of them will end up being fleeced. Indeed, the primary source of profit when it comes to these sorts of junk investments is in the nature of a sort of pyramid scheme form of profit, that basically if you get in on the front end and you can get lots of people then to follow you in, in, in getting into those assets, those people who follow you will drive up the price, and so then you can, of course, benefit if you sell the stuff that you bought cheap when it gets higher. But the problem, of course, is that it's a bit like a game of musical chairs. The inflating of the bubble, so to speak, can only go on for so long. And then once um, you can't get any new investors into that realm, those who are still in there um, end up you know, losing all of their money when everything kind of comes crashing down. Again, kind of like in the game of musical chairs. And so that's what has happened here. That's maybe the first thing to note. The second thing to note is that it always happens, of course, in a sector that isn't regulated, right? So the bond markets are much better regulated than they were in the days of junk bonds, largely because of the junk bond debacle. Similarly, the mortgage markets are much better regulated now than they were in the day of the subprime mortgages, precisely because of the debacle that the subprime, mortgage, that the subprime mortgages brought. Now we've got a debacle, of course, in the crypto industry, and so my guess is that down the road, that's going to be a much better regulated industry, but not before a lot of people lose their shirts, as they're doing right now when it comes to uh, the crypto markets. And, you know, it's that regulation or the lack of regulation that made cryptocurrency such a, a draw and and and. and and an enticing uh, a financial uh, um, a gambit, I guess. A better word. I can't think of a better word for a lot of people because they felt like because there's no regulation by the, the highly structured financial industry that cryptocurrency is revolutionary and it's going to revolutionize money and finance and that kind of thing. But I feel like the exact opposite has happened, uh, obviously, with no regulation means it's literally the wild, wild west of what people do with your money and they can, you know, take it and run away or you could lose your shirt, as we have seen has happened, not just with FTX, but with the general collapse of the crypto market. But I think the other part of this uh, lesson that I think people need to not miss is the fact that the crypto market is collapsing cryptocurrencies, individual ones are becoming insolvent, um, filing for bankruptcy. But the financial market, the regulated market, the stock market, completely unfazed by all of this. So what does that say about the revolutionary nature of cryptocurrency in general? Yeah, I think it sort of indicates, or it, it's yet another indicator, let's say, of uh, an interesting sort of paradox, I guess that you could say, 
um, is in effect in the financial markets and has been for literally centuries. So the paradox is that probably the oldest word that is used in the financial markets is the word new, right? There's always a claim that there's some new revolutionary product or some new thing that's different than everything that came before. And hence, there's always, you know, claims to the effect that this time is different, right? This is a new thing. Um, and of course, again, that's sort of the oldest trick in the book to call something new and to make people think that it's now possible to get something for nothing, right? That it's now possible to work magic. Um, but it's, it's not, right? I mean, the way that you make money uh, in a properly functioning market is by patiently investing in companies that are actually doing something that adds value, that makes people's lives better, and that then accordingly attracts actual customers who actually want to use the thing that's being produced rather than people who are simply looking to make a quick buck by getting something for nothing. Uh, and so the, the way to sort of differentiate between true value-adding new things on the one hand and these kind of fake new things that we find in the financial markets on the other is by looking at the actual value proposition carefully, right? So when people said, hey, you know, we've invented the internet or hey, we've invented home computing or laptops or the iPhone, you could kind of see how that might indeed, you know, make lives more, you know, sort of function better, or they might actually add value to the real economy, right? But when you ask people, you know, well, what does crypto offer? There really wasn't any there there that they could specify. I mean, they'd say, well, it's a, a form of currency that holds its value. But then if you ask, well, why do I need a form of currency that holds its value in order to be able to buy stuff? Is that the idea? And they'd say, well, yeah. And then you say, well, why can't I just use the dollar for that? Isn't the Federal Reserve all of about basically keeping the value of the dollar more or less stable. So how does crypto, you know, kind of depart from that? And, you know, it, once you sort of thought about it, it was kind of clear that there really wasn't any real there there when it came to crypto any more than there was when it came to so-called junk bonds or when it came to so-called subprime mortgages. And I think that's essentially, you know, what we're learning yet again. But unfortunately, it seems like we have to relearn it every 10 or 15 years. So that's the first thing. The second thing is also kind of a paradox, and that is that in order for a free market, so-called, actually to function efficiently, it can only be so free. It has to be, in other words, regulated in a manner to make sure that the freedom that you find in that market isn't actually a sort of destructive freedom, that there's a distinction between freedom and license, so to speak. It's sort of the same thing, more broadly speaking, with just society in general, right? I mean, yeah, we don't want a police state where everybody is operating under the thumb of some sort of authority. We do want a certain amount of freedom. But if there were absolute and total freedom, well, then that would just be essentially freedom for warlords uh, that would be able to kind of keep everybody else in thrall, right? There wouldn't be any sort of order. It would be like the dark ages all over again, where people are just killing each other left and right, and nobody can actually lead a stable life with that kind of quote-unquote freedom. And I think the same thing is true, although a little bit less dramatically, um, in the financial markets, right? If they are too free, they are completely dysfunctional, and then nobody is actually free. Um, if, on the other hand, there reasonably regulated so that you've got certain rules of the game that people have to conform to and the rules are basically designed to maintain a certain degree of safety and stability, then everybody is actually paradoxically more free. And I think we just basically that over and over and over again when it comes to sort of how the markets are structured.
Yeah, you know, I appreciate the the framing, how you frame this uh, from the beginning, Dr. Hockett, and situating cryptocurrency in this long tradition of fad investments, which invariably almost always end up uh, messing over the masses of people who thought they had something to gain from engaging it. And, you know, I remember a few months ago, if it wasn't further back, I kind of felt like crypto uh, may be in trouble because it seemed like we just saw a, a, a slew of celebrity endorsements of uh, cryptocurrency. Currency, you know, people like Kim Kardashian, Jake Paul, uh, LeBron James, Spike Lee, a number of people, and there are even some of them that are have been caught up in lawsuits because of their role in this. And so it, uh, uh, I think, sort of uh, exposes a lot of what you were just sort of breaking down. This kind of uh, uh, Ponzi scheme uh, aspect to how uh, uh, crypto tends to operate, and um, also the, the framing is helpful, particularly as you know, uh, people who are advocates for crypto try to treat as like this, you know, special thing that sort of exists in its own category. And I, I feel like there's still a kind of murkiness around the understanding of what crypto even is that they uh, uh, use to their advantage as well, because you're right. I mean, the proof is right there in the name. And I just want to remind our listeners that to this day, we, we still don't quite know who even actually a, a, a invented crypto. Was it one person? Was it a group of people using one name? I mean, it, it's a big uh, a question mark all around. And so uh, what I'm really wondering is, I mean, why do you think it, it's taken all this time for there to be uh, uh, any kind of serious move around uh, regulation and oversight of crypto um, in terms of the government? I know in the past there have been U.S. officials that have been in favor of that. And I'm just wondering why you think this this hasn't happened you know, sooner. Yeah, I think there are probably a couple of major causes, Sean. Um, one is that, you know, insofar as there's always a kind of mystique around something that's new on the one hand and seemingly high tech on the other, there's a, you know, a certain kind of um, presumption in its favor among many people who will say, you know, look, let's give this thing a chance to flower first. Let's not sort of strangle it in the crib, so to speak. Let's see if there's a there there. Let's see if it actually might develop into something. And let's not, you know, kind of squelch possibly helpful innovation prematurely. And that kind of argument, you know, gets a certain amount of traction, I think, with policymakers, legislators, and so forth. A second and related thing is that sometimes these policymakers or legislators themselves are hoping to get rich quick and maybe want to invest in the, the new sort of fad investment vehicle. Or perhaps they get campaign donations from industries or financiers who are invested in that sort of thing. And these financiers will then put pressure on them, you know, not to sort of, again, prematurely regulate and prevent all of the wonderful developments from actually um, uh, occurring. And then you add to all that the profound degree of just ignorance about what's actually going on out there in these particular markets or in these spaces on the part of particular legislators. And they end up sort of saying, well, I don't really understand this thing. And so I guess the default rule for me will be that if I don't understand it, I won't touch it. I won't try to regulate it or try to keep it safe. And then by the time we finally do understand what's really going on there, and hence we do realize um, that it has to be regulated, by that point, it's in a certain sense too late in the sense that a lot of the dysfunctions that we're talking about right now have occurred and a lot of people have lost their shirts. One saving grace this time around, however, that I will point out is that unlike the case with junk bonds and especially unlike the case with um, um, uh, subprime mortgage loans, most ordinary middle class folk and people who are working class folk 
have not gotten so involved in these uh, crypto markets yet that they themselves are going to be losing a ton, right? Most of the losses are being experienced by, you know, high-end investors, people can, who can, in effect, afford the loss. And so it doesn't look like this particular debacle or crash is going to kind of wash back into the real economy this time around in the way that it did, of course, when the subprime mortgage bust happened 12 or 14 years ago, right? Back back then, shortly before President Obama became president, a lot of us middle-class folk experienced that particular crash. But I don't think nearly as many ordinary folk are going to experience this particular crash. Yeah, I think that's the case. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Hockett, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, November 16th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices and comrades. That's y'all to reach out and touch us at by any means necessary. Here in Washington, D.C., you can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.Mave, that's M-A-V-E, dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Don DeBar, host of the Weekday World Show on Radio Justice LA. Don, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Don, NATO uh, officials are saying that a missile that crashed in Poland and killed two people that was originally thought to possibly be uh, uh, an attack from Russia uh, was actually uh, likely a weapon fired by a Ukrainian air defense system. And uh, they're all and they also said that there's no evidence that uh, uh, the, the missile was intentionally directed there. But despite this, uh, NATO is still saying that the bombing is uh, Russia's fault. 
Um, Jens Stoltenberg, of course, is the secretary general of NATO, said, quote, this is not Ukraine's fault. Russia bears ultimate responsibility. Uh, Polish president Andrzej Duda uh, said Wednesday, uh, quote, the Russian side is to blame for this tragic event. Now, immediately following that uh, uh, missile strike, we saw a, a video address from Ukrainian uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, who basically was speaking as though it was, you know, confirmed that this was a, a Russian missile strike and said, quote, hitting NATO territory with missiles. This is a Russian missile attack on collective security. This is a really significant escalation. Action is needed. And interestingly, uh, uh, the uh, government of Hungary has, has actually criticized Zelensky for uh, his comments. Uh, one, uh, Jurgli Gulius, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who's chief of staff to uh, Prime Minister Viktor Orban, told reporters, quote, in such a situation, world leaders speak responsibly. Going on to say the Ukrainian president, by immediately accusing the Russians, was wrong. It's a bad example. And so this, I mean, there's a lot in this, right? I mean, uh, immediately following this uh, strike, we saw a lot of momentum uh, behind the idea of enacting uh, uh, Article 5 of uh, NATO, which of course says that any strike on uh, a NATO country would uh, and could trigger a uh, uh, response from all the other members. And so certainly we would have seen a very dangerous escalation as that was the case. But uh, Zelensky here sort of jumped out the window and sort of declared that to be uh, the case even before a real investigation had taken place. And it's 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 darkly ironic to me that NATO is literally saying that Russia did not conduct this missile strike, but it's still their fault. They still hold ultimate responsibility when we're talking about a proxy war that is NATO's ultimate responsibility, at least in my opinion. But uh, uh, Don, definitely curious uh, uh, what you're uh, making of this development around this uh, Poland missile strike. Uh, well, first, uh, and, and thanks for having me on, by the way. I'm glad you guys are here, and, and I'm glad Jack is back to it. Um, you know, the, on, on his face, just the, you know, the immediate uh, the response to the, to the immediate uh, impulse to blame Russia reminds me of that meme that's made its way around a, quite a while now, around uh, like Facebook, et cetera, um, with the two Irish setters. Uh, greeting the master at the door, saying, "We're glad you're home." The Russians pooped in the hallway. You know, it's like it's like that. Whatever happens, it's the Russians' fault. Looking at it in terms and the actual dynamic of what's going on around Ukraine right now, I actually was very frightened when this broke. Um, there's news released. You know, shortly after it, it hits this, uh, it's in a village of uh, my my Polish uh, pronunciation is poor, but Pris Pris the Przyjevodov um, is about uh, is, is 75 miles from Lvov, which was under attack by uh, you know by Russian forces. One of the cities that they that took out some electrical infrastructure. Just to remind people exactly how the war is actually going, uh, as they you know get all excited about the uh, Ukrainian advances and such. Um, and uh, what I thought immediately was the same thing that I thought immediately after the second plane hit the World Trade Center, uh, September 11, 2001, uh, was that this was some sort of a false flag operation 
that it was heavy handed. It was obvious, pretty obvious that that's what was happening. And what to me, the only reason for having a false flag operation like this would be to allow the U.S. to go in directly and or NATO to go in directly and to engage in battle with Russia, which I assume is on their minds and they're looking to angle their way into it. Um, you know, the decision makers here. And which, of course, is one of the most foolish things that will have most foolish endeavors in human history if, if they actually get there. Even risking it at this point is this insanity compared to every other insane thing that humans have done since they first crawled out of the trees or whatever. Um, there are a few things in retrospect seeing, you know, you had, as you said, uh, Zelensky immediately comes out and, and Russia did it and Article 5 we should do right away. There was a little circumspection, but not much, even from the Polish government um, and also from the White House. When Joe Biden is saying slow down, uh, then, you know, then things are get, starting to get out of hand already. Um, so after suddenly the Russians, first of all, I think they made an error. I think this was intended as a false flag operation. And somehow video of the fragments got out. And they were clearly things that were in the possession of the Ukrainian military and not the Russian military. And consequently, that story wasn't going to fly even, you know, through the first uh, news cycle. Uh, and, and in any event, even if it was done uh, just that as a uh, dry run, basically, I'm thinking about why would they do this? I know, you know, on the one hand, the headline comes out. Everybody thinks the Russians bombed Poland. And, you know, even if it's two paragraphs down, it says, well, that's not what happened. Actually, this happened. Eighty percent of the people now believe forever Russia bombed Poland that day. But the real things that might be going on in the minds of the military strategic planners, uh, geniuses at the CIA, whatever, whoever's making policy, you know, some drunken guy in the back of the neighborhood bar, for all I know, looking at what's going on, um, one thing that would happen is, obviously, Russian military planners seeing what looks like a false flag coming must expect that a strike is right behind it. And so they would have to mobilize their defenses. And so maybe this is a probe to see how, how and where they would mobilize their defenses in anticipation of a strike. Um, also, you know, we respond to this thing, this thing too. Anti-war people... People generally just concerned about, gee, let's not let them blow up the world without doing something about it. And they want to see like exactly what kind of political or social response comes out of it also. Because for a couple hours, it looked like they were accusing Russia of bombing Poland and consulting about Article 5. And that means war with Russia, overt war between NATO and Russia. And that means World War Three then that probably means a lot of people are going to die. Some of them here. So, you know, trying to assess what's happened now in the, you know, in the 24 hours or however, whatever it's been, Zelensky has been proven to be off the hook. I think, I think you're right. I, I would uh, perhaps uh, suggest he's not exactly a world leader, just a, an actor who was hired to play a minor uh, world uh, official, uh, you know, a comprador or, or whatever. And, uh, but in any event, whatever he is, he's clearly irresponsible, off the hook. And for some reason, 
one other meme that I see making the, the rounds is a picture of him saying, I made $10 million at home last month. Let me show you how. I mean, this guy is the biggest, you know, most successful grifter in the history of the world with the money that's passed through his hands uh, over the last eight months. So I don't know. Maybe he gets some more money out of this. I don't know if he gets if there's maybe a SAG, uh, you know, uh, an hourly rate or something that he whatever it is, if he's getting scale or whatever. But yesterday he was playing the role of someone who's, uh, you know, country uh, in, in essence is now uh, bound to NATO under Article 5, because the country he's fighting uh, attacked NATO. And that's what attacking Poland means under NATO's charter. And what, that's what attacking Poland means in the context of, of the war that's going on right now, that NATO, including the United States, is now an active partner. Yeah, you know, and, and I feel like the fact that— it, the feeling I have that uh, the Polish president basically has saved us from World War Three by, you know, backing NATO uh, away from the precipice of uh, war, declaring, as you said, uh, Don, outright war against Russia. I, I still feel like NATO and, and the NATO commanders and, and even Biden, the Biden administration, Lloyd Austin, who was on CNN uh, at a press conference uh, a little while ago, you know, talking about how the investigation uh, in NATO into the missile uh, is still underway, even though we know the Polish president said, no, the missile came from Ukraine. So I, I feel like we are watching the way that NATO and and even U.S. military leaders really, really do want to find a reason to declare outright war against Russia, because I, I feel like this whole proxy war in Ukraine, you know, using Ukraine against Russia, as much as the U.S. media and the talking heads that they put in front of the cameras that represent the Department of Defense, as much as they claim that Russia is losing, um, like they actually said in this press conference, Russia is losing strategically and, uh, you know, in, in all the ways that there are for Russia to lose. I, I think that they realize that that's not actually what's happening. So that they're, so they're just really wanting to skip this whole proxy war part and get to just a hot war with Russia. But this time, the Polish president backed them off and said, no. It was Ukraine. That That's one issue. But then the other issue is now what does NATO do about the fact that it was Ukraine that apparently attacked a NATO nation? Now, what do they do? Well, Ukraine admitted firing it, too, according to CNN. So uh, your question is a very good one. Um, let me, I, I'll, I'll, I'll answer it in this way, because I've kind of answered it on Twitter with uh, in an exchange with uh, the former ambassador to uh Russia under Barack Obama, Michael McFaul. As soon as this, he is, he makes Zelensky look like he's sedated in terms of how wild he is with, with his whole ideological perspective, his advocacy for more and deeper and broader war. Whatever happens over there, the only response there is, is escalation in this man's book. A, you can go to his Twitter page, Michael McFaul, uh, MCFAUL, and just you know, go back as, as far as February or even last December. What, it, you'll see it de-escalate as you go backwards, scrolling through the, through the uh, tweets. 
Uh, he was ready with six different papers assembled, but he teaches at Stanford. That's his sinecure after uh, basically bringing us to this stage with eight years of uh, diplomacy in Moscow on behalf of Barack Obama. Um, and uh, he, he, he has, uh, among other things, he wants uh, the State Department to and the president to declare that Russia is a state sponsor of terrorism. Among other things, if that happens, for example, you and I and a whole lot of other people can end up in Lynn Stewart's jail cell for, uh, you know, aiding and abetting, providing material support to terrorists. And um, that's one of the milder uh, uh, remedies he proposes for this horrible uh, attack upon Poland by the terrorist state Russia, which is how he put it. He called the murderers for the two people that, that were killed, and he had a whole legion of remedies that were at the ready that they've been preparing for all this time. They wanted break Russia up, up into five or six constituent parts. The, the, the whole thing, basically what Adolf Hitler put together in 1922 in his jail cell. That's his program. This guy's teaching at Stanford. Your kids, anybody's kids are going to Stanford. He's teaching them about the world. So, you know, I, I, I posited a number of things. First of all, the, you know, the, the whole history of this is that, um, that there's a war against Russia taking place on its borders uh, that began with the U.S.-backed coup in 2014 that was mustering long before that, um, with billions of dollars invested, as Nick, Vicky Newland bragged, and that this war has been conducted with material and troops being provided from the West through Poland, killing Russians, and they've been bombing Russian cities with U.S.-backed, with the U.S.-provided bombs, those high Mars and, and other things. Some of the Russian border towns have come under aerial attack. And so I said, if there was a response from Russia, first of all, perhaps it's because they don't follow your rules of engagement, which is that they have to take it and they can't give it back. But beyond that, first of all, let's have a little evidence about who did what. Well, then what happens? We find out actually it was Ukraine. So what is proposed? I asked him, look, these were murders. This was a terrorist act. We did have on the books Azov and uh, C-14 and these other groups that are now that now constitute the government of Ukraine, in essence, were on the terrorist list here in the United States under the Patriot Act, un under the legislation that creates these things in the first place. You're advocating for them. Aren't you providing material aid to terrorists? And aren't you, couldn't you be prosecuted under the statute? That's my answer. That's what should be done. Let's, let's, let's look at that for them. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely see what you're saying. Definitely see what you're saying. And it's just, and the, and the other thing about it is that a lot of people from the uh, beginning of this conflict were pointing out the danger of uh, situations just like this, these kinds of accidental missile strikes and things like that, that could potentially trigger uh, a broader war. And that is precisely the scenario that we almost saw play out uh, uh, right before our eyes. And so the more that time goes on, I mean, the more that this whole uh, uh, proxy war just, I think, is just exposed for the farce that it is. And I want to talk more about that on the other side of our first break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. 
any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Don DeBar. And Don, continuing our conversation around Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, today Zelensky is actually uh, uh, scheduled to uh, take part in a conversation with former President George W. Bush um, as part of the Bush Institute's conference on the, quote, struggle for freedom, where there will also be virtual remarks provided by Tsai Ing-wen, the president of Taiwan. Now, well, according to reports, this event is centered around uh, uh, discussing threats to freedom uh, that are happening around the globe. Of course, uh, specifically uh, talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and uh, uh, the supposed potential attack on Taiwan by China. Now, it, it seems to me that uh, George Bush, of course, uh, uh, a Republican, it, it seems that this is uh, at least partially taking place as a kind of rebuke to the Republicans who have been sort of doubling down on this idea that they will cut aid to Ukraine um, if they get in power. Now, if you really believe that uh, the Republican Party is somehow uh, less warlike and hawkish than the Democrats, I have beachfront property in Botswana to sell you. But this is wild for uh, a, a few reasons, Don. I mean, number one, this is a reminder to me about how George Bush, you know, this this racist warmonger who tried his very best to, you know, bomb uh, uh, the Middle East uh, off the face of the map, who opportunistically um, uh, uh, capitalized on a uh, morning nation following the uh, terrorist attacks of September 11th, uh, 2001, to carry through all these things. Someone who was uh, demonized. Uh, uh, by the Democrats. And I mean, I think rightly so. And I think also by just about any other uh, decent person. And indeed, uh, uh, the two terms of Bush uh, sort of paved the way for uh, ultimately the the presidency of Barack Obama as a segment of the electorate uh, electorate wanted a kind of uh, a change in things. But now, of course, we know that's, uh, you know, basically just a fresh face on the same old imperialism. But be that as it may, uh, this is just a, a pretty uh, transparently uh, propagandistic uh, sort of event. And I think part and parcel of this celebritizing of Volodymyr Zelensky that we've been seeing in the time since uh, 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 the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, that's been, you know, part and parcel of basically laundering this proxy war for the uh, American public. You know what I mean? All right. Well, first of all, someone needs to tell uh, Zelensky if he's not familiar with the uh, protocol um, at Bush's uh, events. Uh, that due to budget cuts, he has to bring his own crayons. <laughs> but George doesn't have a, a set for him to use while they work there. And um, then in terms of the whole question of Republicans and war and all of that, um, it, it's, you know, first of all, the term the terms are meaningless. There really hasn't been any major ideological distinction between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, for a long time, there are symbolic ones. Uh, around issues of race and gender, some material ones, but so in terms of funding some programs and Roe v. Wade and such. But in general, 
the ideological perspective is monopoly capitalism, uh, empire, uh, war, uh, funding the military, uh, and impoverishing uh, the bulk of the people. And so, you know, you're seeing uh, sort of some sort of a you started seeing a reaction to basically the impoverishment of the American people part and frustration with uh, the structures not <clears throat> providing <clears throat> any kind of remedy for the problems that people face pretty much across the board. Uh, in 2015, when you saw Sanders rising up as an outsider in the Democratic Party, Trump rising up uh, as an outsider in the Republican Party, I uh, had people in the streets so like hardcore. Uh, with uh, you know Black Lives Matter in particular, but but other groups as well, uh, the, you know you had a generalized uh, uprising of the working class, basically trying to find expression, um, and uh, hampered by the fractures that have you know have been uh, both a legacy of history and also uh, that have been massaged for sure uh, by the ruling class, um, and so you you can almost track this phenomenon in the polling with respect to the like legitimacy numbers that people have for the institutions to, regarding Congress, where you have like 15, 20% positives for Congress. And by the way, as against like a 95% re-election rate, uh, which that all by itself produces a, a whole sort of uh, dissonance in the, in, in the public about, about the institutions and their legitimacy. Uh, about the press, again, the press polls around the same uh, people's economic condition is the primary concern that they have, even the most recent polls before the election, uh, like this war, for example, World War Three. actually, as you know, you might characterize it as certainly uh, the beginnings of it, um, number nine or 10 on their list, you know, in terms of concerns, because their own concerns, economic ones in particular, are so immediate. And then you have an election that's conducted where something on the order of 30% of the votes are the product of the new methodology of voting that has two real important features. Now, the first one is that there's no chain of custody for the ballots from the time the voter ostensibly makes the vote and the time it reaches somebody to be counted. And the other is because of the, the circumstances around which it's executed, there's no exit polling possible for that group of votes. Now, exit polls, uh, you know, seem like a, uh, you know, like a luxury or, or, or some, you know, phenomenon that's, you know, for scientists to play with or whatever. But according to the State Department, for example, and, and you know, lots of others, Jimmy Carter Center, et cetera, exit polling is the only real useful audit uh, mechanism uh, to, to see how reliable the vote count actually is. Um, and that's the scientific tool that they've used. State Department, for example, looks at the vote, say, in Venezuela or Ukraine or Zimbabwe or wherever, um, and they look at the exit polls. And if there's a vector of 15% or more by their own standards, automatically that is not a legitimate election in the eyes of the State Department. Here, 30% of the vote is outside of the reach of that kind of analysis. And that would be one thing if this batch of votes coming in wasn't decisive, but it is, and it has been since, since it was introduced. Just as an aside, legally, in federal elections, these votes are questionable 
um, because uh, under Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2 of the Constitution, in, in the federal elections, particularly president and senator, uh, the rules, the law governing uh, the election uh, it, it, you know, of those officials are set by the state legislatures. And in the case of a number of, of these, particularly, say, in Pennsylvania, for example, in fact, in uh, 2019 and 2020, the state legislatures took up that question and rejected it, raising the concern that I just raised about you know, the, the chain of custody and that it is susceptible to fraud, which is something, by the way, uh, that even Jerry Nadler said emphatically um, only four or five years ago. You know, you have a ballot, somebody fills out here, and then somebody else carries it, and then somebody else counts it later. You have no idea what happened between one and the other. Um, that was expressed by the legislature. And so what happened was that you had a Republican legislature. That was the reason that they did it. I'm sure it had nothing to do with election integrity. But by the way, they happened to be right. And then you had a Democratic governor and a Democratic, I think it was attorney general, or secretary of state, one or the other, Governor did an executive order, and either the AG did an interpretive ruling, or or the Secretary of State did some administrative thing. Whatever it was, it was not a product of the state legislature, and it changed the outcome of the vote in 2020, for example, in Pennsylvania. These this other massive batch of ballots. So you have all these different things playing in the background that don't just affect Trumpers or even Republicans, and you have the unanimity of opinion among Republican and Democratic officials that these these things are insignificant or non-existent or the product of some QAnon delusion or whatever. And so, you know, it's hard to say that there is a Republican Party or a Democratic Party in the face of some of the fundamental questions that, that govern everything else, including selecting the officials. And when you see Bush... You know, the Bushes line up with the Clintons, line up with the CIA, line up with the FBI, line up with the NAACP, line up with the every institution in the country on one side. And then this group of people over here who are branded as white supremacists, maniacs, whatever. And, and that group, by the way, has the only public officials that are even raising a challenge to the funding of this war. You have to ask yourself, what the hell is going on? I don't know what's going on, but I'm looking at that question. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you ended on that, Don, because it's wild that it's Marjorie Taylor Greene who uh, raises the point that, you know, this whole missile strike in Poland is absolutely on Ukraine and that this is the reason that the U.S. has to stop giving Zelensky and Ukraine all of this money because Zelensky is a madman that the U.S. is propping up with our money and that needs to stop. It's wild that that challenge comes from crackpot crazy mama. <laughs> I had to say that to not call her a cuss word. Um, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And it's not coming from AOC or the squad or anybody in the Democratic Party, nobody in the Progressive Caucus. And Donald Trump in his uh, campaign announcement yesterday, I think, said something like, you know, Biden spending all this money propping up Ukraine in this ridiculous proxy war. Well, at least I'm not going to drag the U.S. into another endless war like I kept the U.S. out of for four years. And I mean, 
I can't see the lie in that. And and where are we in the American political system where members of the Progressive Caucus, a member of the Progressive Caucus, Ilan Omar, says that people on the left who are calling out this horrible policy of the Biden administration and not only starting this war back in 2014, but now funding it. Um, and and that's wrong and that, that needs to stop. She said that we are a, a uh, disgrace to the anti-war movement. And it's the crackpots in the GOP and the Trump wing of the GOP who are agreeing with us. What is going on? This is upside down world for me, Don. You know, I don't know. Is it is it a, some sort of a massive public relations campaign where they're all active players and they're you know, basically seeking to reconfigure the population to render us completely inert, basically, and to not be able to defend ourselves against further and deeper exploitation. Is that just a byproduct of things that are, you know, happening sort of, you know, on their own? Or 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 is there some deeper kernel that we have to look at here and 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 analyze and uncover? And you know, by the way, with the way things are blowing up over there. We got to do it pretty damn quick, too. We don't have a lot of time to parse all of these really complicated questions out before this gets out of hand. And, and you know, I'll remind everybody as if it's necessary. <clears throat> we do not have John F. Kennedy or Robert McNamara or Robert Kennedy or Ken O'Donnell or anyone of that stature anywhere near the decision making. There is no one speaking. Uh, to the point that the preference would be to not have war. I mean, you have some of the diplomats, McFall is one of them. Well, it would be much better if Putin would stop his war. But since that's not going to happen, we have to do this, that, and the other thing, all of which involve blowing something up. Um, you know, but but right now, we don't even have a voice advocating for it. You know, and, and, and I know I, 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 I grimace every time somebody, myself included, uses the word progressive in relation to any of those people, Sanders, AOC, Omar, any of those people. They are aggressive in, in, in their interactions, their interactions with the people that show up to protest, to call while they're handing each other ribbons and, you know, whatever they're doing, these little ceremonial junkets that they go on to pat each other on the back. When someone comes in there and says, oh, by the way, World War III, and they start condemning their constituents in public, it tells me everything I need to know about them, everything. And, you know, history provides remedies for this kind of behavior. You know, ask Marie Antoinette. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, certainly. And, you know, something actually just occurred to me because we were talking about um, George W. Bush, uh, of course, uh, has scheduled a public conversation with Volodymyr Zelensky. And, you know, in 2020, during the 2020 election, following it, rather, Donald Trump declared that uh, the election had been stolen from him uh, uh, falsely. And as a result, we got the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Now, you go back uh, a few years before that, in the 2016 election, the Democrats were claiming that Russia stole uh, the U.S. election, of course, giving us uh, uh, the Russiagate myth that still permeates uh, so much of uh, political consciousness in the U.S. and the West. But George W. Bush tops them all because he actually stole an election. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> 
You know what I mean? So he's he he's balling out of control uh, uh, on this whole situation, right, and beca- because Al Gore and the Democrats were such cowards, and they were more uh, uh, worried about uh, a quote unquote peaceful uh, transition than they were actually honoring the results of an election that they literally just gave it away. So I just want to throw that in the mix as well. And yeah, you know, I definitely understand what you mean when uh, uh, you talk about how there really aren't uh, uh, any real sort of progressive um, uh, uh, elements within the uh, uh, U.S. government. And it's it's odd because now, because of the Republicans' pronouncements about Ukraine, which I continue to maintain are just lies, um, now, if you advocate for peace, if, if, if you really, if you contradict the uh, Washington consensus on the proxy war in Ukraine, well, that's now seen as a right-wing talking point or a right-wing politic because it's associated with um, uh, Republicans, which is uh, completely absurd based on what we've already discussed about the uh, this religious uh, uh, devotion to war, death, destruction, and imperialism shared by both ruling class parties, the Democrats and the Republicans. But, you know, I just want to encourage, you know, everyone out there who is, you know, a real progressive, a real anti-imperialist, a real anti-war person, that we have to, as a matter of principle and out of uh, interest for the, the, the plight of humanity, we must remain consistent and firm and principled in our stance against this war, just like we are against all the other wars that are happening uh, around the world. And as we continue to see this uh, uh, attempt to crack down or try to tamp down on dissenting views around this and intensify, that that I think is going to become even more important. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 0252-11320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Don DeBar is here. And uh, Don, uh, switching gears uh, a little bit, though, certainly still uh, uh, within this issue of uh, uh, U.S. politics, uh, Donald Trump has officially announced, of course, his third uh, presidential bid here in the U.S., of course, for 2024, an election that is just two short years away. And when he gave uh, this speech, you know, during his announcement, he just lied a lot um, and just kind of presented himself as, you know, a friend of the working man or that he's, quote unquote, pro worker and things like this, which, of course, is just a, a, a complete Farce. I mean, you know, we can look at the the 2017 uh, tax reform law, quote unquote reform, which uh, in substance led to this incredible transfer of wealth 
from workers to the rich. We're talking uh, a total of at least $2 trillion that happened as a result of this. And uh, this tax law also cut the corporate tax from uh, 36% to 21%. And uh, so just at every level, uh, the way that Trump sort of presents himself is basically just uh, a scam. And I think back during 2016, he was able to play on the fact that he wasn't a professional politician like uh, Hillary Clinton with her odious background and uh, things like that. And so because of that, he could, you know, uh, uh, position himself as a kind of outsider and insurgent uh, sort of force who's really who's going to uh, uh, create all of this policy that's supposed to benefit all the people that uh, uh, the Democrats left behind. But we just didn't quite see that. And we're already seeing, I think, some ructions inside the Republican Party as it pertains to Trump in 2024, with some feeling that uh, a Trump ticket in the next election would not be successful. I feel like we're seeing uh, uh, more and more people sort of lean towards uh, Ron DeSantis as it uh, pertains to that. But just uh, curious, your thoughts, Don, about not only Trump's uh, uh, announcement here, which you know I think was uh, pretty unsurprising, but you know uh, uh, what you think this might mean internally for Republicans and, you know, obviously we don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, what, what this next couple of years uh, may hold. Right. I, well, uh, first to be, to be honest, I, I didn't watch his speech yesterday. I haven't looked at it yet. I've been watching the situation in Poland and things that are seem much more immediately uh, of you know concern to me. Um, I intend to take a look at it over the weekend and, you know, I can answer some of those questions. I, I can frame it, however, in a couple of ways. The first, going back to, to you know, the last, uh, you know, uh, things we were saying, it, in terms of uh, characterizing uh, Democrats or Republicans, Trump or any of, of them uh, on a spectrum of left and right, you know, it, it, <laughs> by what criteria? Um the, the numbers you just quoted for Trump, for example, in terms of, uh, you know, the situation of workers, income, whatever. Uh, but, you know, look at the, the, what, the loss of wealth by black people, for example, for the eight years that, that uh, Obama was president um, and workers in general. Uh, the situation of workers over the last 30, 40 years under the Clinton administration, under the Bush administration, now under the Obama administration. The numbers that, that, that of you know the condition of workers under Trump actually stopped sliding. The tax pro, you know the tax uh, you know whatever giveaway to the rich people notwithstanding, um, and now the condition of workers now compared to the way they were two years ago, I, I certainly don't think you could say the Democrats have taken a left or a progressive position. And, and shown workers that they have some concerns for them. Workers are more, uh, you know, stressed in every area, housing, income, uh, health uh, care costs, food costs, uh, fuel costs, heating, electric, all these things than they were two years ago. A lot more, as a matter of fact. So, you know, we, we look at this stuff in newspapers and we take slide rules or whatever the modern equivalent is and we, you know, calculate it through our political calculus and all that stuff. Voters tend to vote based on, you know, what their situation is. I can't afford my insulin. I can't afford, to, you know, gasoline or heating oil or whatever. 
And uh, their behavior tends to be tied, particularly for voting, uh, you know, more closely to those material problems. And so just with that in the background, let's go to like 2015, which is only a year before the 2016 election, um, and look at the polling data for Trump and what the uh, collective wisdom of the media was regarding Trump and of the political insiders people like Chuck Schumer and others who are now pontificating about what this last election meant. Um, and he was in a much weaker position than he was then. Um, and uh, the country was in a much better position than he was then. Um, and yet he was elected in uh, November of 2016. Now, I have no idea what's going to happen in two years. I do think, uh, if you look at current polling, he's still by far the strongest candidate polling-wise. He has very high negative numbers. They all do. His are exceptionally high. Uh, you've had a five or six year media campaign that pretty much every day from you know one side to the other basically points out how he's an evil, racist, misogynist, no good crook who steal, stole your grandmother's wallet, and et cetera. And he, his numbers pretty much hold fixed. Uh, I don't think you can write all of that off just to the fact that there's a steady 40% of voters who are clinically insane or, you know, ridiculously attached to fundamental Christianism or whatever other crazy explanation people have. There's some people who see that as working class people, because that's the majority of the people that are among his supporters, materially, in terms of how they relate to the means of production, the working class. Um, that's where his support is. And it hasn't shaken. And it has to do, I think, with the material conditions that they face more than all of the other stuff, all of the social and, and political commentary and discussion and the, you know wars that go on in social media, et cetera. So I have no idea what's going to happen in two years. It may be that he's going to become irrelevant. Personally, I don't think this is even about him as an actual human being or whatever the hell it is. It's about the phenomenon, the sociological phenomenon is what matters. And we're not just talking here about a cohort of white workers who were racist, and that's fundamentally the glue that holds them together, and that that's fundamentally the reason that they back him. What we're looking at, again, is a working class phenomenon that was in both the Democratic and Republican parties and in the streets, and it was tamped down. You know, Sanders people... Was, were put to sleep by Sanders to the best he could manage. They brought them back into the fold behind Hillary Clinton and then basically has just walked away from them. And he's become as, he is as pro-war as anyone there, for example, really. Uh, and, and you see what's happened with the leadership that, of the people that were in the streets as well. They, on the one hand, were demonized and the other bought off. And so this last cohort of this uprising is still there and they're public enemy number one. The solution to the problem is not going to be to put them to sleep as well. And the solution to the problem is really not to, to look at this as, as something that's a phenomenon around Trump, but rather you know, a, a part of the whole condition of the working class in this country that needs a remedy. There's a struggle for power that's going on behind the scenes, obviously between several factions, some factions of the elite, Trump obviously has some support in that very deep state that he's talking about, or he he would be irrelevant. And there are others in that deep state that are playing some very ugly and scary games to keep him out. I'm I'm not sure that he won't have a plane accident or 
fall off a building or whatever if it turns out he's on the ballot and threatening to win again. Because it seems that there is an awful lot among the establishment. Again, Schumer said so. The intelligence agencies have six ways to do it. Not a single powerful institution controlled by the, whoever the elite is that belongs to them is in favor of Trump. It's not because he's a bad guy, because they love a lot of bad guys. It's for some other reason. And I have a feeling that it has to do with, A, this cohort that supports him are standing outside of the, you know, this, the thing that they have assembled together. And two, that there's some faction inside the elite. I don't know. I mean, one of the things that we've speculated, uh, me and a few people kicking this around, is that, you know, one represents maybe a trend that 100 years ago Lenin referred to as finance capital and others, a trend that he referred to as industrial capital. This is something that played out in Europe at the time of the fall of the Soviet Union, for example, including an assassination of a guy who was the head of the German uh, Central Bank when they were deciding what to do with the Soviet Union as it was coming down, German industry was looking at it like, wow, we're going to go redevelop it. We're going to make a ton of money. And finance said, no, you're not. We're going to loot it. And finance was being directed by Washington. And th this is something that still you have like in the United States, uh, you see China going around the world. We'll build you a city. Um, we'll, we'll build infrastructure. We'll do all these different things. You know, you've got a, a world with about half the people are in need of one of the following necessities, or water systems, sewer system, housing, uh, electrical infrastructure, the transportation infrastructure, educational infrastructure, healthcare infrastructure, et cetera. But maybe half the world. And here in the United States, we've got people that can build any of these things and equipment to do it, sitting idle. China can go in and do it. Why is that? This, I actually asked the guy who Trump had appointed as the head of the Export-Import Bank at a conference in, in Washington like four or five years ago, right after he got appointed. Why? What is the thing that's intrinsic to this economy or this political economy that leaves this massive you know, productive capacity idle in the face of this massive need for what it can produce that China is able to provide? His answer when I asked him, I asked him was on C-SPAN. I asked him, and, and he said, we're looking into that. And then he was out of there, I think, in like two months. You know, we have a whole lot of real powerful stuff being struggled over that's never part of our conversation. And, and it does, I'm sure, find expression in the political system. But, you know, to us, it's bewildering because nobody talks about what, what all these things represent. Somehow, somebody behind Trump or around them or whatever— I don't even want to speculate who that might be, particularly coming out of Atlantic City, but whatever. That they're also pushing hard, and they're doing it in the face of you know all of the arrayed power, pretty much of the establishment. I mean, if you got the CIA and the FBI and the Justice Department and the President and the, both houses of Congress and the Republican leadership and the Democratic leadership arrayed against you, that that means you, you have somebody very powerful that's that's mad at you. Now that doesn't make you an angel, by the way. Because when Hitler started, the, the, the power structure treated him that way, too. Um, but, you know, it's also worth noting, unlike Trump, Hitler was appointed by the power structure. He was appointed. This, this is the history that people get wrong when they point to 1932. Adolf Hitler was appointed chancellor by the guy that ran for president to protect Germany from Hitler, Paul von Hindenburg. 
when he when he won re-election in 1932, he made Adolf Hitler the uh, chancellor of Germany, and within a month or two, the enabling laws, quote unquote, in the, the aftermath of the Reichstag fire, that made Hitler, you know, basically like a, a legal god. Basically, he was an all-powerful figure. And uh, the same was with Mussolini. People think of fascism as coming on the back of crazed workers or whatever, but Mussolini was appointed prime minister by the king. That's not the way that Trump came to power here. He was elected. Arcane rules, but he was elected. And his cohort has held tight since then. They must have felt they got something in those four years. Yeah, I think that's true. And um, I always like to point out that, you know, it is the fundamentally undemocratic nature of uh, U.S. politics that uh, really gave us a Trump victory because he lost the uh, uh, popular vote to uh, Hillary Clinton, but won uh, through the uh, uh, archaic uh, uh, electoral college. And you noted something a moment ago, uh, uh, Don, that that I, I want to uh, touch back on here in our uh, last few minutes today. And that's the fact that the Democrats' resistance to Trump was I, I basically moralistic. And I agree that, that they really hung their hat on just uh, 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 emphasizing, you know, his, his repugnant ideals which he does, in fact, have like it's it's true that uh, Donald Trump is a racist and a bigot and, and all these sorts of things. But I don't think it's an accident that that uh, anti-Trump energy that we saw after Trump's election um, never made its way into uh, like a pro worker movement at the behest of the Democratic Party, because in truth, um, you know, the Democrats are they're beholden to the same, you know, Wall Street and interests and wealthy interests. These are corporate executives and bankers that uh, Donald Trump serves himself. And so even if, uh, at least in my opinion, Donald Trump is fundamentally a tool of uh, the millionaires and billionaires that uh, are a part of his uh, uh, ilk, I tend to agree that, uh, you know, he still has this uh, 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 base that is, you know, pretty fanatically uh, loyal, uh, uh, despite uh, whatever disagreements there may be within the Republican Party itself. And we've even seen uh, the Trump is wing of the party go after the mainstream elements uh, uh, if they don't fall in line sufficiently. But what I'm really getting at here, Don, is the fact that the Democrats just are not equipped to lead a real resistance to Trump. You're talking about a party that uh, uh, tried to impeach Trump not once but twice, and the second time being when he only had like two weeks left in office. So a completely empty and useless gesture that they still did because they would rather engage in political theater than uh, uh, do something uh, useful, something that would have actually made a difference. You know what I mean? And so, you know, as ever, Don, it just seems that it's going to take um, an independent uh, uh, element outside of the political mainstream, outside of the Democrats and Republicans um, to really fight for, you know, poor and working people's interests because, you know, uh, these uh, two ruling class parties seem only interested in just you know, uh, engaging in this never-ending pinch fight amongst themselves. You know, uh, the, the characteristics that you ascribe to Trump, I won't argue with at all. I, I don't know him, but certainly there's ample record to support that. And um, I'll also point out it doesn't distinguish him at all from any of the other players on the stage. Joe Biden's history actually is as ugly or worse than uh, than Trump's. He had the levers of government power most of the time that he was committing his stuff rather than writing editorials in the newspaper. And uh, 
you know, Barack Obama installed AFRICOM in Africa. I don't know what else you could say about him. That is the biggest gift to white supremacy in the last 150 years, materially. To, to allow the U.S. military to dominate the continent in a way that wasn't possible before he became president, I think is a pretty significant uh, change in Afri Africa's condition. And I think it's germane to the question of racism, honestly. Obviously, I think historically, uh, it's a difficult thing to argue. You know, this is a feature of this system. And George Bush was elected also uh, with a minority vote. You know, in other words, less elect, less popular vote than uh, Al Gore. He stole two elections, by the way. He stole the 2004 election as well. And despite protestations from uh, John Kerry throughout the campaign that we have 95 lawyers, we're not going to allow anyone to steal this election, et cetera, about 10 seconds after the polls closed, he laid down. And I was engaging with uh, David, I can't remember his name, the head of the legal team there, saying, what the hell are you guys doing? And they just they just gave it up. You saw the specter, a spectacle of uh, Al Gore presiding over his own demise at the, the January 6th, 2001 uh, joint session of Congress when they ratified the vote. So, you know, it's hard for me to, to parse, you know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Fold like laundry, like always. Well, we thank you so much, John, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Spud and Washington, D.C. We'll be back tomorrow with an all new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.